I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel. Welcome to Whiteness Interrupted. I believe we have to collectively disrupt and interrupt our whiteness and that it will have consequences. We must choose to have resolved that it is absolutely worth it. We don't have time to wait another day. So let's begin now. Hi, Brave Souls. I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel and your host on Whiteness Interrupted. I cannot contain my excitement today because my college roommate, LaPierre Carby, is here to join us. Uh, LaPierre is a financial advisor for Northwestern Mutual. LaPierre, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Please, everyone, join me in welcoming LaPierre to the show. Welcome, friend. Hi. Hello, my lovely, lovely Tanya, who's like my mother. And when I say mother, my Chi Omega mom, so I know people get weirded out and they go, but she's your age. And I go, no, it's my mom. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so honored to have you here too. So, Lapierre, I remember vividly the day I met you. Do you remember what I'm going to say? I remember exactly what you're going to say if you're talking about meeting at my house for the first time with your mom and your girl. Yes. So, I think it was the summer of 2000 before our freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. And I lived in central Wisconsin and you lived in Milwaukee at the time. And I showed up to your, your home with my mom and my grandma. And I will never forget <laughs> you telling <laughs> the story of saying, oh my goodness, it's Barbie. <laughs> It was so funny because me and my mom literally thought my roommate was going to be black because your name was Tanya and your mom's name was Charmaine. And we we're like, she's got to be black. And then when you came out of the car, I was like, it's Barbie. <laughs> she's not black at all. <laughs> not at all. Right. Raised um, in a very monocultural town in central Wisconsin. And I know you've been there. Um, and then we meet, I remember being in your home and being excited to meet you. And we were talking about like, who's bringing the microwave? Okay. Like, are we matching our things? And I just remember it being really a bit surreal as well. Yes. Yeah. And then I remember when we moved into our place, like both of, um, you know, my parents there, I vividly remember your dad helping move in. Um, and I actually remember immediately feeling really connected to you in a way that felt like home. I swear, like, I knew from the moment, and, and just to backtrack, people, when I say Barbie, it, it's not a, a white thing. It's more so Tanya had this long, luxurious hair, like, down to her butt, and it was, like, thick and beautiful curls, and you're just like, whoa, like, whose hair is that beautiful? And you see her now where she's got like the short jazzy haircut. Tanya's hair used to be like super long. So that's why I say Barbie. But I remember feeling initially homesick um, when my parents like left after moving in, but I felt home and I never, it didn't, it did, it like subsided super quickly because of you. Like, you always made such an effort to make me feel home. And I drink grape, grape juice because of you, because I remember that Welch's grape juice that you always <laughs> have in the fridge. 
<laughs> you were like a grape juice fan, and I was like, I didn't realize how good grape juice was until I had Tanya. But you, we would have these long conversations at night and just delve into so many deep things. And I was like, from there, I just never felt homesick. I always felt like, oh my goodness, like this is my sister from another mister. Like I feel home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am forever grateful that we met and we were talking before uh, starting to record the podcast that it has been years since we've seen each other as well pick up right where we left off (laughs) as if we've seen each other this whole time (laughs) (laughs) well um i want to start our conversation for the podcast and asking you what are some of the moments or experiences that have paved the way for you to become the brilliant woman you are today? Well, I wouldn't say brilliant, but I appreciate that so much. <laughs> but I feel, honestly, and, and I never want to make people feel uncomfortable with this, but honestly, um, God, God has been the, the, the main thing that's helped me to understand and become the woman that I am. Um, I, I transferred my my senior year of college. So I transferred from um, Carthage College down to Tennessee State University um, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I felt like I became a woman at that time. I, I, I couldn't just quickly go home anymore because home was no longer just 45 minutes away um, with Carthage. And I ended up meeting um, the first year I was here in school, I met this woman, Barbara Patterson, and I know it was only ordained by God for me to meet her because she literally helped me to become the woman that I am today. This this fearless woman, this uh, woman who is who is not afraid of her opinion and who's here to just help create opportunity for conversation to take place, the, a person who has a, a strong relationship with God, a person who has, even through my worst downfalls, has, has been there to help encourage me through it and to connect more with God to pull myself out the situation. So I, I when I say God, it's because he, he, he keeps connecting me with the right people to help me on this journey and on this pathway of life. And it's not always been great. But even through those things that have happened that weren't great, I've learned so much. And one of the things, um, I call her my bonus mom, um, Barbara Patterson, and she's my apostle for my church. But she always says this, you can't teach what you don't know. And she says, you, you, a lot of times hate to go through things. But when you go through them, it, it, it helps you to be able to understand so you're able to teach others. But you can't, you can't be able to tell someone how to get off drugs if you've never been on it. You don't understand their struggle. You can't understand how to help people with marital woes if you've never been married. You can't help people with financial planning if you haven't been through anything. And I've been through the ringer um, when it comes to things that have happened in my past financially after losing a job as a pharmaceutical rep. And so me going through that and everything that I've gone through to this point has helped me. So when I teach my clients As a financial advisor, I'm teaching through experience. I'm teaching them how to not go through what I went through. I teach them how to create a stronger foundation. And when people understand that you've been through it and they understand that you know what you're talking about, they receive it better 
than someone just telling them something without the actual experience. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful and so, so true. I was also thinking about how Barbara was placed in your life, right? I think about, I don't think anyone that we meet in our life is by chance. Um, and you sharing that story reminded me of that for sure. And then all the struggles that we go through at the same time. Mm. It's so many struggles. Um, now when I look back, at the time when you're going through it, you're just like, oh God, why me? You could have picked someone else. What were you doing? But then as you get through it and you come out stronger, you're almost like, God, I thank you for choosing me to go through this. I thank you for seeing that I was strong enough to go through this, but I thank you for the reward that comes after. And the reward is being able to just connect so many other people to their purpose, connect other people to the amazing spark that's within them and, and pull that out of them. Um, I feel like I've always been, and we, we joked about this earlier before we started, I've always been opinionated. I've always been a, a kind of a, a voice and a, a, a force to be reckoned with, especially while playing games. You don't want to play games with me because I'm a sore loser. But when it comes to what God created in me, I can always see the greatness in people. And when I'm in my, my, my career as a financial advisor, when I'm in my ministry, when I'm in just me and the everyday life, I've always been that person that people say, I don't know why you were able to see this in me, but it makes them feel good about themselves and they push for greatness. They push for their own individual thing that no one's ever been able to see that spark before. And so I, I just hope to continue to be that person to just live in purpose and live in the means of just letting people see their light. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have always seen the very best in everyone. That is just who LaPierre Carvey is, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So can you share with us um, part of your passion or your journey to being passionate about taking people to their wealthy place, especially for black and brown or first-generation Americans as well as other marginalized peoples? It, it honestly has been where I've, I've been doing this for <clears throat> over 14 years now um, in the financial arena. And I have just learned over the years and just seen over the years the struggle of, of, of black people, of, of brown people, of, of Asian people. I've, I've seen that as much money as we've gained over the years a lot of times we have nothing to show for it. And it's not that you don't have those particular um, like small percentage of people within those groups that are wealthy, you do, but the, the majority of, of us don't have just opportunity just laying at our feet, ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so I've looked at that and I've seen where the only kind of insurance um, most black people have is that person that goes door to door burial insurance. And so if that's all you have and you're able to get buried, but you're leaving nothing for your family and then learning that your family takes on your debt when you leave, I'm like, we're actually creating a cycle of poverty instead of a cycle of generational wealth. How do we quit that? How do we stop that? It shouldn't be that your parents or your, your siblings or your spouses take on your, your duties and your debts 
because you didn't take the time to set something up that will make sure that you're going to take care of it. So I'd love to educate us as a people of, hey, did you know that you can do something on a larger scale to make sure that your family's okay? But then the, the biggest thing that you hear from all three of these different um, cultures is that <clears throat> I had to struggle, so I, sh I feel like my, I will make sure my kids struggle too. And I'm like, what? We're always saying the white man this, the white man that, the white man got this, the white man got that. And it's like, no, it's not that the white man is just taking over for everything. It's because you prefer your children to struggle. Mm -hmm. And I understand it's because, again, it's that cycle of poverty that your parents wanted you to struggle. Their parents before that wanted them to struggle. And it happened to be that the slaves didn't choose to struggle, but that was their situation. Yeah. So and now you're making your children be a part of something that you yourself never wanted to experience. So that's why I try to teach from a means of, hey, let's create something better for you while you're living, but let's also make sure that we're protecting your family's future so that way now you can start your family on a good foot. Now you can be the next Johnson & Johnson. You can be the next Walt Disney. You can be the next Sears and, and Walmart. It, it just takes being able to create something that you yourself may have never known about. And let's stop making our kids struggle. I'm not saying that you can't make your children work hard for what they deserve. Absolutely. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't throw a pebble in their shoe intentionally for them to struggle. Yeah. Wow. And so in many ways, I, what's coming to my mind is your work is also healing for future generations within families. It, it is. It, when I look at the clients I work with and then I'm able to work with their kids and they're excited because they see what we've done with their parents and they've also seen what their parents have set up for them. It, 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 it gives them the excitement now to want to do that for their kids. And then they also want me to talk to their little kids and, and, and start it early. It's a, uh, my apostle always says, and it's in the, in the word, but one planet, one water, if God gives the increase. If I could be the one to plant that seed early on, and, and, and hopefully I can water it as well, but even if I'm not there to water, at least the seed is there. Someone's going to come along and water that, and God's going to give the increase. When it gives the increase, it's going to give the increase to say, hey, you know what? We do need to build wealth within our family. You could be in the most the, the, the lowest place of poverty, but that doesn't mean that opportunity can't come if, if you don't have a desire. And, and I ask my clients when I'm meeting with them, you know, I told them who I am when I do the first introduction, who I am and what my process is. But I tell them that next meeting, if you want to take that journey with me, that next meeting is all about you. I want to know what your wants, what, what your, your desires, your vision are. And I'm going to ask you that one question, what do you want? And I want you to speak into existence what you want because the power of life and death is in the tongue. And when you speak it, I'm going to write the vision, make it plain, and God's going to give the increase. When I tell that to people, it gives them hope to realize, oh, my goodness, like, I've never been able to talk about myself. I'm, I'm either working so much, I'm either taking care of this person or that person and never myself, so I never get to say what's important to me. And I feel that that's where generational wealth begins to take place, when people feel that who they are can now be on display and now they can talk about what's important to them and they can know that they have someone in their corner and, and backing them to help guide them to see it happen. 
<clears throat> excuse me, most of my job is, is shining a light in areas that are dark, mm-hmm. being able to show you how to do things like getting out of debt. People are like, oh my goodness, I thought I was going to have this debt for like 10 plus years. I'm able to show them how to get rid of that debt in maybe two, three years. But I, I tell them, I say, hey, I'm your financial health care provider. I'm here to improve your financial health. When I write a prescription, which is with me writing your plan, mm-hmm. I can't force you to do the plan. Just like I, your doctor can't force you to take that prescription. But they hope to inspire you to take that prescription so you can be healed or you can be better. I hope to inspire you to follow the plan. Because if you follow the plan and you're, 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 you're dedicated to it right now, it's going to be a short period of dedication for you to enjoy the rest of your life. Tanya, I asked my clients this one question. Do you want to focus on deferring for a moment your life to enjoy the rest of your life? Or do you want to enjoy your, your life right now to defer every opportunity that you've ever wanted for the rest of your life? And, I, and what I mean by that is, do you want to put in the dedication now to say maybe the next two, three years, I'm not blowing money, going on vacation, doing all these big Christmases, doing all these big things. And I'm, I'm dedicated to the debt and saving and I'm focused for maybe two, three years so I can enjoy the rest of my life at a young age. Or do you want to say, I can't take it with me. I'm going to blow this money now. But then you're working forever because you never planned. That's what I'm here to show people. Oh, you're such a gift. And I also, you know, one of the things is uh, what I'm hearing is that this is so much more about wealth and money. It's also helping people live in their purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all about helping people live in their purpose. I feel that the minute that you discover purpose, you get to enjoy the rest of your life. I, I promise you when I, when I, when I've done finance, like in the financial arena, I've been everything from, Uh, a credit manager, a personal banker. I've been a branch manager. I've been a mortgage officer. I've done done it all in the financial arena. And I I was always working for someone. Mm -hmm. I was always making money for someone. And I was always one of the the top people winning trips. But the, the true value of what I got was like pennies compared to what I earned for that company. And when I... When I started working for myself, and even though my affiliation, my compliance is through Northwestern Mutual, I'm still my own business. I'm still my own financial advisor. I get to help my clients the way I want to help them. But the minute that I turned this into ministry, the minute that I focused on this being ministry and being purpose, and, and what can I do to make sure I'm helping my clients get to their wealthy place and helping them discover the, the, the meaning inside them, I promise you, I have not had to work a day in my life. This is just what I enjoy. My days are my days. I get to live life. When I was working for someone, oh my goodness, I had to choose when I wanted vacation to go see family. I had to work on on Saturdays throughout the month. I, I had to work late days. When I worked at the bank, we were had skeleton crews, and it would be like two of us working to cover a whole branch of customers coming in. We've been robbed twice working at the bank. And I mean, like the scariest things you can ever imagine have happened. And I said, I never want to live like that again. I want to work for me, but 
even when I started working for me, it still was a struggle because I was building my business and I felt like I was chasing people and, and, and trying to make people work with me. But when I turned it into ministry, now I'm just like, I want to work with people, but I'm here to work on their pace. I want to work with people, but I want to work with people who want to work with me. And, and, and we, we mesh well together because when we do, oh my goodness, we can take over together. But that's what it's been. It's become ministry for me. And me living in purpose helps others to get excited because they're like, if she's living in purpose, let me discover what mine is. And when I discover what mine is, I'm not working as hard to try to see and create generational wealth. Knowledge just kind of coming to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you see yourself uh, reimagining wealth society as well as how do you see yourself interrupting whiteness in particular? I see myself interrupting whiteness by just having the conversation. The conversation first with my white counterparts, mm-hmm. making them feel uncomfortable. And when I say making them feel uncomfortable, it's not intentional uncomfortableness. It's let's have this conversation and we can no longer just act like it's not happening. We have to now realize that for years, there has not been opportunity. And when we talk about opportunity in the past, when it, what, what's, what's the term? We had to have a certain amount of black people and Asian people that was the giving the quote unquote opportunity. I can't think of what the, the name of that word is, but maybe huh, what is it? Quota. It, it's kind of like a quota, but it, it's um, something that the courts have deemed that it had to be done um, in order to make sure that a black person would get that opportunity, but it would be like one black person that would be able to work that one job because that's what the law made it happen. And it's like, that's still not opportunity. That's still not creating equity where we, and it's not even, yes, it's about equality, but it's about equity. It's about, I'm not here to talk about when people say, oh, that's socialism and whatever. And I'm like, y'all don't even understand what it, what that means. Because if you understood what socialism was, you would understand that you're already living in it. If you get Social Security, if you get Medicare and Medicaid, if you have military benefits, if you get for the farmers, you get benefits in order to help. That's socialism. But you're not complaining about it when your hand is out. When we're going through everything with COVID right now and getting relief, that's socialism. This country is not trying to make that all about socialism. They love capitalism still, but there's got to be a balance. And so... I say that, um, I say all that to go back to when we're talking about equity, we're not saying everybody just gets the job. No, we're not saying that. We're saying people still have to work for that opportunity and prove that they're worthy, but you're not even creating the opportunity. You're not even putting it on the table. And I know a lot of white men are feeling like people are coming after them and they're attacking them. And I'm like, no one's coming after you. But if you walk the day in our shoes, for not even maybe like a couple hours, you'd be trying to run back to your whiteness as quickly as you possibly could, even though you feel like you're being attacked right now during this social injustice endeavor that we're trying to, you know, figure out. But when it comes to interrupting whiteness, I I want that conversation to be had. How do we talk about racism? How do we talk about that 
even when you don't realize you're being racist, you're gaslighting. How do we realize that we're having a caring moment? Trust me, there are black Karens out there as well. <laughs> it, it's not just white women. There are many people who are considered Karens when they just feel like it's all about me, 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 and I'm here to make sure that no one else gets an opportunity. That's a Karen. And so let's have that conversation. But I feel like if we're trying to always push that conversation underneath the rug, then we're never going to move forward. So again, me, my me trying to get people to talk and even if it makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm still going to have that conversation. I even tell my white friends, I go, you guys don't understand that at the end of the day, you guys don't really have to be uncomfortable around me. You can be who you are. But for me, surrounded by you guys, I have to feel a certain way or make you feel comfortable. And you get tired of that. You get tired of trying to make these people be comfortable when they're not even having to ever think how to make you comfortable. Maybe I want to listen to my music in the car when I'm driving. And if I'm driving you guys in my car, but even when I'm driving in your car, you're listening to your music. And then when you drive in my car, you're listening to your music. When is it ever going to be my time to listen to my music? I know that seems small, but that's the day of a life of a black person. <laughs> it's like in your space, I have to make you feel comfortable. And in my space, I have to make you feel comfortable. When are you going to try to make sure I'm comfortable mm -hmm. so I can be me? When it's interrupting whiteness, how do we make sure in this financial arena I'm teaching my clients, hey, do you know I'm not, there's nothing wrong with how white people have been building wealth over the years, but did you know you can do that too? Did you know that these are ways that you can help reduce your tax exposure, reduce taxes? Did you know that you could put money into this bucket to accumulate better and in a safe way? Did you know that you can take risk but create this and this to create balance so you could be more riskier in the market and make more money? Did you know that this is how you can protect your family for the same amount that you're paying for a burial policy and get so much more. That's interrupting whiteness by educating people of color about the opportunities that are available to them and then interrupting whiteness by saying, actually interrupting whiteness, saying, let's have this conversation. Even though you're uncomfortable, let's have a means of moving forward because we have to deal with what your ancestors have done in the past. And I get it. You yourself have not owned slaves. I, I almost get irritated when I hear that. Right? I, never, I never had slaves. Girl, we get it. We know you didn't have slaves, but you're not correcting your grandfather, your, 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 your parents. You're not correcting anybody in your surrounding to tell them what's happening is wrong. So although you've never owned them, your, your hands are still bloody. The blood is still on your hands because you're not stopping the conversation to call me the N-word. You're not stopping the conversation to say, why do we have to do this for them? Mm -hmm. If you're not stopping that conversation, but you refuse to have the conversation with me, then that's the problem. And that's why we have to keep interrupting whiteness. That is the problem. So many problems. I, I often think about, you know, also if if our my ancestors didn't own slaves, uh, that I still have benefited as a white woman from slavery. Mm -hmm. The foundation of anti-blackness in the United States um, and what that has meant for my ancestors to have opportunities. Or I even think about, you know, being raised, um, you know, lower middle class, maybe working poor. 
but I, I, in my whiteness could, could put on, you know, I could move into spaces and people not know that. And I, I think that we, we collectively white people, we grasp so much to this idea, well, I wasn't privileged, you know, like I don't have, fi- like in think of talking about financial wealth, like, oh, I don't yeah. have, but yeah, but the color of our skin didn't hold us back, you know, from opportunity and, and the conversation is uncomfortable, but we, we have to begin to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You said it perfect. Like at the end of the day, if a, a, a white person from the hood, like if they like, grew up poor, if you, if you clean them up and dress them up, they get that job in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. If a black person who was already dressed up, bow tie ready to go, they wouldn't get that job. Mm-hmm. That's a problem that you yourself could come from a place of poverty and no one would actually know that you were unless you told them were or unless maybe the people around you said you were. But you can always go and start your life and become anybody else. Black people don't have that same kind of opportunity. And so one of the things that have been, um, it, it, it's been difficult, and this is a good way that, uh, about interrupting whiteness. Um, one of my study groups, uh, it's uh, one of my study groups, a, a women's study group that I'm in um, through Northwestern Mutual. And I love these women. They're like my sisters. They mean everything to me. But I, I have been, they have allowed me to have the conversation and I've been open with them. I said, especially at the heart of when everything was happening and I just wasn't mentally present. And I said, I'm not, I just, I can't be happy right now. I can't be this. I can't be that. And I, I hope that you guys would understand how I'm feeling. But at the end of the day, I would feel that even as white women, that you of anyone, of anyone, as, as you see the struggles of what women have had as a whole, I would think that white women would be the first ones to be, to, to, to be our megaphone and have our back. And that's what was so disappointing to see that a good majority of white women were quiet. <laughs> they were so quick during the Me Too movement, and the Me Too movement was started by black women, and white women took over. <laughs> yeah. it's, always, it's always that black people can start something, and white people will take over, and black people will be like, God damn, we... We can't have nothing. Country music started by black people. White people took over. Uh, rock and roll actually started by black people. White people took over. You have the 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 blues. Elvis Presley was close. He was trying to take over. And you almost like you 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 almost have to take it as flattery. But then at the same time, you're just like as much as you guys wanted to do so much to enjoy our culture, you think you'd be the first ones to stand up for it. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, oh, we love black people, we love black music, we love black this, but girl, you on your own. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? We, we, we marched together during the Me Too movement to try to make sure that women's voices were heard. And now that black people are trying to be heard, you say, all lives matter? What? Yeah. And, 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 and to me, I'm like, it, all lives can't matter until black people's lives matter. Yeah. And it's not, it's not saying that no one matters. It's, you guys have mattered for so long. We're just trying to matter. Yeah. We've never mattered to you. We're trying to matter. You've already mattered. And then once we matter, brown people, Hispanic, Latino people can matter because they're right here, our brethren with us. They know the, the fight. Asian people, I feel so bad for them because they've been under the radar and they're almost like they've been too quiet to talk up and speak up for themselves. But now I'm so glad that they are um, having to speak up for themselves because of what's going on with the, the racism happening right now because of the pandemic, 
they're like, now we have to say something, but it shouldn't have to take us to get beaten, to get to get hurt, to get destroyed, for us to have to say something. Mm-hmm. And I feel that white women should have known that more than anyone. You've been destroyed. You've been hurt. You've been a woman. You've been in this world that's been predominantly built by white men or been predominantly, not built, but predominantly taken over by white men. And this is not to talk about white young men of today because I feel like the generation of today, they get it. But I'm talking about old, older white men and the, the, the older generation that for some reason just won't die. <laughs> so we can get a better start. They're the ones that keep holding on to the old world. That's where you almost look at white women and go, you don't even think like them, so why are you letting this continue to happen? We had your back. Why are you not having our back? Yeah. Well, up here, I also think about, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book chapter for Dr. Alicia Carter on the history of feminism, and I really think about when we look at the history of feminism, it was white women fighting for white women and all the ways that historically we as white women have excluded all women, women of color, trans women, and really not been about equity. Mm-hmm. So, and I also, this is not a well-formulated thought, but I have thought about the ways, I think white women, even liberal white women, that we oftentimes do the most harm when not even knowing or, you know, pretending not to know. But there's also white women, we've also benefited from patriarchy. We've benefited from so many policies. And so to undo that is also to give up privilege. And so, and I also, Mm. if, if as white women, um, if they choose to marry, they're, you know, predominantly married to white men. So, you're you're benefiting from the union with a white man and so i i've thought about these things and like this messiness of i I really do believe that as white women we have to become brave and we have to make a conscious decision to stand alongside all people but especially our sisters of color and we're just not doing it we're just not I feel like it'll get better the minute that we all see that we're in this together. And we're not, and, and the thing is, it's, it's, um, it's a scarcity mindset. Uh, you, you, you learn that, like, in, especially when you work in sales or anything like that, like scarcity mindset and abundant mindset. Mm-hmm. For some strange reason, uh, and, 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 when I, and let me backtrack. When I look at people like you and I see what, 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 but I'm seeing that my timeline on Facebook and I'm just like, this, even though this is one of my my friends and I love her, she gets it. She's not just trying to talk about how to help black people when black people are around. Because that seems like the one time that black, white people are like, yes, girl, I defend you all day, but I'm not in your face. But are you defending me when I'm not around? When I go in all white spaces, I yeah, I'll continue to let the harm go on. Yes, and that's where it's like, what? But I thought you had my back. So when I look at you, that gives me hope. This whole time through this whole period of everything with social injustice during 2020, that was the thing that when it would go like when I was sad and I would put my post, and then your thing will come through my timeline and will give me hope. And you have no idea how much hope you gave me. Where I was like, I can't believe in anybody else. 
I believe in her. And, and, and from just us having that initial encounter in college, and I knew that it was meant for us to be roommates because God knew who you were going to be. And you needed a black roommate. You needed a black boyfriend for you to be able to say, I get this. I've been in this space. And now you've got black children. You feel what I'm saying? Like, and now you have a black husband. I say that because God knew that you would be an actual megaphone. We've been asking everybody to be a megaphone for so long, but you're an actual megaphone. You're saying, this is the problem. This, These are the issues. And we're not just going to talk about it when we feel good. We've got to talk about it when we don't feel either. But if we have an abundant mindset, we'll realize that opportunity is there for everyone. There's not a lack of opportunity. If you have a scarcity mindset, that's when a lot of white people are thinking, well, if we let all these people come in and get whatever, we won't have anything. That's the worst kind of mindset to have. You don't understand that if everybody benefits, maybe this country would not have as much poverty as they have. We're not trying to create communism. We're not trying to do this great big socialist experiment. But for some of the European countries that do it, like they're doing pretty fine. And we're always bragging about, oh, I love Paris. Oh, I love uh, Switzerland. Oh, I love and I'm like, but those are socialist places. I'm confused. What do you want? It's like, look, it's like being in a relationship and saying, oh, that woman's got legs for days. And, oh, but your wife has legs for days. Uh, her legs aren't great. What? She's got the same exact legs. What are we talking about? Yeah. You can't see what you have in your own, your, your own, like, own uh, garden. You're too busy looking at someone else's garden and thinking the grass is greener when all you need to do is tend to your garden. United States, all we need to do is tend to this garden and stop having all these weeds come up and then act like we don't see them just because we got some roses over here in this other patch. What? Yeah, you also have me thinking about the just the loss of human potential when, when you were talking about like you know, the scarcity model. And like, if there is more access to education, if there's more access to opportunity, all of these things, we raise each other up in human potential. And there's so much being lost um, by all of the disparities and inequities that the systems, that government, that institutions have intentionally created. Mm -hmm. Intentionally created. It's like you created the scarcity situation to to create struggle. And I'm like, why? I'm not saying that some people are not just going to struggle, period. That's just what it is. But aren't we supposed to help our brethren? That's another thing that confuses me. I had to tell one of my um one of my one of my clients who is a really good friend, but they're and they're black. And you know, they they're they're building their wealth and they're like, you know, a lot of my friends, a lot of their black friends, they're like, they, they wanted to vote Republican. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm just trying to talk this when I say, I told them, I said, well, I'm not saying for them to not vote Republican, maybe do it on the next election. I said, but for right now, he said, they, they get they get irritated because they're like, why do we even vote Democrat anyway? Like, we've been voting Democrat for so long. And I said, if black people only knew the whole reason why black people have an innate nature to vote Democrat. It's because Democrats actually align with a good amount of what black people are about. When I say that, a lot of black people through history from slavery until, and even before slavery, 
they have an innate nature to be connected to God and go to church. Even for those who are like, I don't go to church for some strange reason, they're going to find themselves there. Mm -hmm. and, what, and what black people have learned about Jesus and what God wants is to help the widowed, to help the poor, to help children, to, to help those who are, who are without. That's what black people have literally been taught and, and, and learned and grew up. So Republicans don't really do that. Mm -hmm. So Republicans are all about how do we make sure that the rich stay richer and we could care less about the poor. We could care less about, you know, any kind of benefits to help anybody who's less than. And so that's why black people through their own subconscious vote Democrat. It has nothing to do with the whole thing that about socialism. It has nothing to do with that. Even if you honestly took politics out of it, Black people are just going to vote for the people who look to take care of people. And black people are going to vote for the church. They just vote for the church. And it's not even about the church. Because even the church gets it wrong. It's just about what it is as a good human being to be a good human being. You want to just continue to help people. That's just what's in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's interrupting whiteness. It's interrupting whiteness to understand that you just help people. If you see your brother struggling, am I not your sister? Is he not your brother? Are we not to help each other? Because, if, man, if you watch every single movie that has a, a black friend, he or she is always the one trying to help that white person get it. Why are we always the helper? Because that's what we've been bred to do. Mm. But all we're asking is, could we be the lead? That you help us. Yeah. Yeah. I want to see that kind of movie. I want to see that type of TV show where, where we're the lead and you're being there to back us up, help us out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the things as part of our whiteness is individualism, is um, status is right being recognized and it's the, the undoing of all of these white dominant or white supremacy culture norms of recognizing like no I need to step back um and you know that's actually one of my critiques of this very podcast to be honest mm. navigating I have a firm belief that we have to disrupt whiteness and finding my, and even recognizing, do I have a lane, right? Do I have a lane in this conversation? And so I will, people that know me well, will, will so I teeter back and forth of like, oh no, like uh, there's no lane, like, you know, um, the, there's nothing. And then there's moments where I might talk to a colleague and will say, no, just thank you, because then I don't have to be saying it. So I guess in the transition of this statement is a question for you of how do you find it or why do you find it important that we collectively continue to interrupt whiteness? Um, I'll leave it there because I have so much more to add, but I want to hear your response. I think that one of the things that we, well, Black people are, are telling the white counter, our, our white counterparts, and I think you're getting it, but I feel like a lot of people are missing it. A lot of white people are, and this is a different mode um, when I say this, but a lot of white people are saying, I don't understand how I've been racist. Tell me, show me. And we're looking like, man, over the years we've said it, but no one's listening. So now do the research. 
you're doing the research. You've done the research. And I'm looking at other white people like, I can't, I can't just tell you about this book. You got to do the book report. And then come back to me and tell me what, what you think you got out of it and what you've read. Because white, black people have been telling pe white people for years. Black people have been telling everybody for years, this is a problem. This is what's going on. This is the issue. And instead of doing the work, a lot of white people rather have the work done for them. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I think about and I say, like, right, I'm a white woman. And I have opened up in different conversations saying, look, like, I, I'm racist. And people are like, how can you be racist, right? And I'm like, well, my adjacency to people of color does not undo the racism in my DNA. Right? Yeah. You know, I was born by a white woman who, who was not anti-racist. Um, and like, it's a moment-to-moment -to -moment toil anyway. Like, I don't even get to claim that I'm anti-racist. Like, I never, right? It's just a toil to try to be in a given moment because the next moment I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah. I think, like, for us as white people, just recognizing we just show up. We just show up in our whiteness. And so without even our own awareness. And so now I'm going through my mental Rolodex, and I'm going to tell you a time that is so vivid where it was an aha moment. We might have been 18, 19 years old. And we remember when we were driving. Did we have my dad's Avanti? I don't even remember. Uh, yes, I think so. We were driving uh, to Ohio for the final four, I believe. Yes. And I remember LaPierre, we're driving, right? And I mean, I'm, I'm a naive 18, 19 year old. And you said, we stopped at like a subway. And you're like, oh, I don't, I don't feel, you said something like, I don't feel comfortable here. They're going to spit in my sub. And I didn't say anything to you. I don't remember saying anything, but I remember being like, thinking like, well, why would they do that? And then I was like, oh, I know why. Like I had to go through this conversation internally. And I don't even remember what I verbally said to you, but I know that was a moment for me. Mm. My whiteness was interrupted because I was like, my very best friend who I love so dearly in this moment of time, right? I so certainly viewed you as my very best friend in those moments. Um, and it's still very dear, right? But I remember being like, this is so wrong. And like, I just think that as a white person, we can navigate, move in and out of this world without thought. And you shared so eloquently how even with friends, having to make other people who are quote unquote friends feel comfortable in your presence. Mm. That, like, that's what I mean by the, the research. You've done the research. At the time, I get why you didn't understand, why you didn't, you didn't get it, because you've never had to experience it. So that makes sense. But at a moment where you see everything around you kind of like blowing up, that should make you be like, i got to understand why everything around me is blowing up and for you to even get that where you like I, I know why she felt that way or why she feels that way every moment that we're in as black people mm -hmm. the only time that we ever just get to kind of just be mm -hmm. we only get to be when we're around mm -hmm. our people even if it's the worst of your people, you still just kind of feel like, hey, girl, like, <laughs> we're going to find some kind of common ground somewhere. You could be in the hood and you still be like, oh, I got to grab my purse, but girl, they're playing my song. Okay, I'm going to let my hair down. It, it's something about 
just being around your people, you just feel like you can let your hair down. But the minute that you're around other people, they'll, they'll say things like that. Like, I don't get it. Like, why do you feel that way? That doesn't even make sense. And you're almost like, man, like, how do you not get that? Like, how do you, how do you not get that? This is my life. This is my situation. These are the days that I've got to go through as a black woman, not even a black man, as a black woman, I have to worry about possibly being shot like a black man, but I don't get the same work opportunity as a black man. Um, I get paid less than white women and Latino, Latino women and Asian women. Um, I think that I, I, I got the most degrees out of any culture in the world. Black women in America have the most and highest degrees, but we still are making less. If we give our opinion, we're an angry black woman. What? I, but if this white woman gives her opinion and she's just with the same kind of tone, she's a bitch. And then if a white man does that, he's passionate. Yeah. What? Uh, I, what? I'm aggressive. That word hurts when we hear it. I'm aggressive instead of being assertive and passionate. Like I'm passionate about how I feel. I'm aggressive if I'm attacking you. I'm aggressive if I'm hurting you. But a lot of times we could just say how we feel and oh, oh you're doing the most. I, I can't take it. Mm-hmm. I, it, it hurt. It already hurts. It's already a lot to be a woman, and then I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot on both spectrums that I, I I'm not winning on either side. So when we try to tell people about our experience and explain it, and when people kind of chalk it up as "girl, like you making a mountain out of a molehill," we're like, if I can't ever just say how I feel and express it and it be received or respected, why even say anything? Why even talk? Why even continue to even con- like have a friendship or, or can, and, and I shouldn't have to explain to you every time why I feel the way I feel. So that's why when I say, when I love someone like you who's doing the research, you're not just saying, why do you feel the way that you feel? I need you to explain it and give me a whole dissertation. I think black people are tired of giving dissertations. We have PhDs beyond PhD. I've got too many diplomas on the wall right now to explain it or to do it. And now I'm just like, can't you take the class too? <laughs> well, and in today's day and age, especially, right, there's audiobooks, there's podcasts, there's uh, racial educators on social media. There, there, it's, there's no longer an excuse. And uh-huh. we as white people cannot continue to lean and burden black indigenous persons of color to explain your realities. Like we just have to start getting it right. We just have to start caring. And that's all we ask. That's when you care, you show it. Um, and I, my, my sister always says this, one of my sisters, she says, you can tell me you love me all day, but you're not showing me you love me. She tells me that's what she tells her husband. Like you can't keep telling me you love me, but you're not showing it. You, you show me you love me through your actions. So when my white counterparts are saying, we love you, Perry. Oh my goodness, we love you. But why? You're not showing it. You're not speaking up for me when I'm not around. You're not even speaking up for me when I'm there. So how can you utter the words that you love me when there's no action behind what you're saying? So again, that's where black people feel like, man, we're still here. That's, a, that's another thing. 
black this is why we get so confused a lot of times with some white people we go with all the things that we've been through in this country and even for those who may not be in down indigenous to this one well, i don't even want to say yeah indigenous because if people actually know history and, and i've learned this through african history um uh, through um back when I went to, went to TSU and through our history. But if people actually did their history, black people were here with Native Americans before anybody came here. Mm-hmm. You have black people who were scholars, who were the Moors, who were mathematicians, going around the world teaching people about math and, and, and philosophy. Black people taught Christopher Columbus how to sail, which we, I guess we shouldn't have because <laughs> uh, maybe we should have kept that to ourselves. But we've done that. When you look at uh, Latin and, and Hispanic culture and you go back to history, the Aztecs and all those things, and even um, populations who have been killed off through genocide, they have provided math and science. So that's what blows my mind that for for Black people and Latino Hispanics, for us to give so much to this world, not just this country, this world, and for everyone to treat us like crap, and for us to be the most for us to be the poorest in this country, in other countries, for us to be the poorest, how are we the poorest when we're the ones who have given the world so much? And if you look back and you look at all the things that Black people have created, you look at all the things that Latino Hispanics have created, why are we the ones that are struggling? We've, we created these things to make your life easier. We created it to make our lives easier, but we created it and it made everybody's lives easier. A lot of things that... Um, like when you had uh, your, your mammies and all those working for white people back in the day, they created all these things to make their jobs easier. And now the things that you use every day in your home, black people created that. But, but we get the short end of, of the stick. So I think that's where it's been a struggle throughout the years where out of all the things that white people have done to black people, mm-hmm. out of all the things to, to take us from our, to take us, from from our homeland and to bring us here. You already have black people here, but to take the black people who are here like the Moors and then bring over the slaves that you brought and that you were to split them up from their families and put them with other people and say, that's your mom. So now what you've done, you've also created where we don't even know where we come from. Mm-hmm. You can trace your lineage back and we can't because our families have been separated or we can't because our great, great grandfather was actually a slave owner who raped my great, great grandmother. And now I have to have that conversation. Like that's, that's the part where it's like, out of all that you've, out of all that white people have done, black people should be revolting, but we don't. Black people still have grace to say, Come on, girl, let's talk about it. Girl, ask me any questions you got to ask. We're always still trying to create the table. And I think 2020 was just the, the point that Black people just said, I'm done having the table. Girl, you got to just get it for your own right now. Because <laughs> all that we've been through, and with all this happening, and you still can spit in my face and say, all lives matter. What? Mm-hmm. My house is burning. Your house isn't but you want to make sure that water's put on your house, even though your house is not burning. That's where we're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
I mean, every day, every day, Tanya, that's what black people, we say, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about like, oh, what are these white people going to say or do today? Yeah. yeah. And what, what am I, what kind of weird question am I going to get now? And, and, and you know, what's so funny, like when we were in college and I, I did not foresee this at all. I, I thought I would end up with a black man. Just because I, I, you know, my daddy's amazing. I don't have daddy issues. My father's been in my life and the most important person in my life, and he's my best friend. And I just thought I was going to end up with this beautiful chocolatey man. And you know, that's what I thought. Well, my boyfriend's white. <laughs> and then when I look at you, I thought, well, maybe she'd have a white boyfriend, a white husband, and your husband's black. So that's funny that we're both with the counterpart. But uh, my boyfriend said to me the other day, he said because we played beach volleyball and he was saying after um, he went um, played volleyball one day and he said there was some uh, a family that came by and they were super drunk and just super racist and saying racist things and when they are when him and our friends sat by the fireplace uh by the place that we play volleyball that a group of those people sat by and were saying the n-word and everything and it was just like it was just real crazy and in my mind, again, what black people have to think. White people don't think like this, but white black that's how black people think. Mm-hmm. Did you say anything to him? Yeah. And and I, I was quiet the whole time he was saying something. He was just like, I guess we're not gonna talk. And I'm like, I said, Well, what I would say, you don't want to hear me say. And what I would say is, did you say anything to him? He was drunk and you know, and I said, even if even if someone's drunk, that's still a teaching moment. You don't have to escalate and turn it into a fight, but your girlfriend is black. Yeah. What, if, what, if we, what if we got married and had kids? Your kids would be black. Mm-hmm. So now whenever he's saying the N-word, he's calling your kids that. Mm-hmm. That's the part that I was just like, we, you, it's exhausting to be black. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting to be black. It's exhausting to have to think, did you say something? And then if I even ask you if you said something, you'd be offended that I asked you if you said something. Mm-hmm. But I have to be offended every day when somebody feels comfortable enough to say, I'm a nigger. Yeah. That's, it's exhausting being black. It's exhausting being a black woman. It's exhausting having to be the supporting cast member all the time. Yeah. And I'm not saying I need to be the lead. By no means I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's just exhausting being the supporting cast member. Sometimes I just want to be the director. I want to be the producer. I want to be on the outside. I want to be the executive producer. I want to be the one who has the money and puts this production on. But I hate to be the supporting cast member mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were born for so much more. Mm. And we all were. It's just that white people get the advantage to see that they were born for so much more. Mm. And told that they were born for so much more. And, and told that you were born That's for true. so much more. So much more. All of those things. All of those things. Well, I do love you. And I will commit to continue to show up um, in my actions more so than my words to interrupt my own whiteness as well as all people's whiteness uh, that living in white skin. And I love you so much. Can I, can I wrap it up with some uh, Absolutely. that I will not have any interruptions. It's just your truth. 
You ready? And before, and before you go, I just want to tell you, I love you too. And I thank you for creating this platform and doing the research and being so amazing and being a sister, but a true sister and being our megaphone. I thank you. Mm. Uh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So, mm. all right. Uh, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is honestly watching everyone not have the opportunity to succeed and financial disparities. That keeps me up late at night. It honestly does. It's weird. I sometimes can't sleep at night because I'm always thinking about, oh, this person's struggling. How can I help them? I can't. How can I help them? Oh, my goodness. I need to do this. I need to do that. I'm always thinking of financial things and sometimes... I can't sleep at night. Mm -hmm. mm, thanks. What brings you joy? God brings me joy. Um, I know this sounds so cliche and I don't want it to be, but I swear it is. God brings me joy when I, I can't find joy in people, but he connects me to the right people that I know that's him bringing me joy. He creates, puts me in the right moments. I know that's him bringing me joy. He puts me in the, he protects me from the, best situations that could have hurt me. That's why I know that it's him bringing me joy. So God brings me joy. Mm. A lot here on your last day of your earthly life and you meet your maker. Uh, what are you toiling for her to say to you? I'm toiling for her to say, did you do everything that you could to make your stamp on this world? Did you live in purpose? Gosh, that's beautiful. I love you. I love, I love you. I just want to say this one last thing. God couldn't have chose a better mother to shepherd the two beautiful black men that you are raising. And he knows that through, through the research that you've done and for the person that you are, you're going to be able to tell your boys that they're so deserving. As black people, we've always been raised to be told you have to work so much harder to get what you want. And already that already sounds so heavy. I'm a kid. I have to be told that. But you're going to tell your boys you're so deserving. And they're going to walk through this world believing and knowing that they're deserving. And they're going to still work hard. But he, he created you for purpose to bring these amazing young boys and young men to be the best men on this earth. And I'm just, oh, I get so excited and tingly when I see that because I'm like, he gave you these two beautiful boys and it was through a, a, an amazing white mother, but a powerful mother who speaks up for justice and, and wants us all to win. Mm -hmm. Well, I always say they are the biggest gift that I did nothing to receive. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Brave souls, go ahead and take a deep breath in through your nose, holding your breath at the top and exhaling through your mouth. Center yourself in your body. Mm -hmm. 
Recognize where you feel unsettled. Maybe it's sweaty palms, tense shoulders. Maybe you feel it in your jaw. Let go of the tension, the holding. Take a deep breath again into your nose and exhale through your mouth. Yes, we have a lot of work to do. There are inequities all around us. Even if we neglect to notice, we have benefited in so many ways if we live in white skin. And our financial benefits are only one of the ways. Rather than feeling guilt or shame or defensiveness, might we toil to create more equity, to give back what we've been given, to repay our debts we owe. Take a deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. And choose to be a better human and to fight for the equity, the financial equity of all people.